Um, I want to say thank you um, on behalf of the pastors and Jess and I. Um, I have, every year, the pastor appreciation. Our, our first year at the church, we didn't know what was happening. Um, every Sunday, we had Sunday school. And so when the elders were coming out and talking about it, it was like at the end of the service. Um, and we in the middle, and I, I still will never forget this. Um, we went on a youth retreat. Um, and uh, Max Kubaki and Cole, who were both on stage, were in my car. Um, and uh, the brakes in my car were not working. Um, I had a janky car, and every time I went to slow down, um, Max would announce, uh-oh, you know, and you could just hear, like, I mean, it just, it was not good, and it started on the drive to the camp, um, and I just sat there thinking, well, we'll probably just get rid of the car, um, and we got back, um, and uh, we, we were pretty stressed out. We took it in, got it looked at, and the amount of money it was going to be was way more than we thought. We were hoping it was just like we needed new brake pads or something, and it was a, a major problem. Um, and I remember I went into work the next day, um, and when I went into work, the pastor appreciation, the, the church had cut a check from what people had donated, and it was the exact amount plus a meal at Chick-fil-A. And I will, I will never forget that. Yeah, and so thank you all. Um, every year we're just so overwhelmed with your generosity, and I know I speak for the other pastors when I say that. I've never been at a church that gives the way you all give, so thank you. I'm also bad at transitions, as I acknowledge this morning, because now we're going to start talking about Isaiah, um, and that was my smooth entrance in. Um, but uh, we, are, we are in the book of Isaiah for Christmas this year, and this is our first week of our Christmas series. We did the Advent candle lighting. Um, I want to acknowledge right now that it is finally appropriate to listen to non-theologically correct Christmas music. If before Friday you listen to Mariah Carey's Christmas song, shame on you, okay? Shame on you. Um, I am a hater of Christmas music. I'm, um, now that we have Lucy, Jess, we, we haven't had a tree our whole marriage. All of a sudden, Jess wants a tree, and I'm like, we don't need a tree. Look at our traditions of not having a tree. That's as strong of a tradition as anyone else, but I'm, I'm generally not the, I'm like a Grinch, you know, or Scrooge or, you know, and I mean, Scrooge transformed a lot by the end, so I'm okay with that. But I, I say all this on the front end um, because it's me. Um, I, I also want to tell you, um, when Rit said we're going to be in the book of Isaiah, my first thought was I'm super excited about this um, because over the summer when we were preparing our Luke and Acts curriculum and, and going through that, um, something that stood out to me is in, in both Luke's writing and Acts, and Acts, both written by the guy Luke, he references Isaiah all the time. And what I learned was that I know nothing about Isaiah. I've never really studied the book. And so when, when Rich said we're going to be in Isaiah, I was excited. And then I realized, oh, I have to do the first week. And this is a book I haven't really studied. I've read through it before, but I've never really dug in. Um, and so I'm very excited for Tim and Rich preaching coming up. And I'm going to do my best today. I am excited to dig in because, you see, as I jumped into Isaiah, the thing that stood out to me the most was coming out of Acts and coming out of Luke. There are all these things that just hyperlink and just connect. And, and it's just so amazing how interconnected the Bible is. And so I'm excited to bring you a message to kick off our series where we look at Christmas according to Isaiah. To begin, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this day. Lord, we thank you that in the days of Isaiah, some 700 years before Jesus was born, you gave so many promises of hope. You gave so many assurances of what you would do. We thank you that the promises that you made to a serpent in the garden, 
that you made to the people of Israel, that you made to David, that you made to his descendants, that someone from your line and from his line would reign forever. We thank you that those promises are true and fulfilled. And Lord, we we pray today as we open up your word that you would encourage us and instill in us the the faith we need to follow you. I I pray that uh, as we read today, we would um, just, just recognize how amazing your promises are and how unbreakable your word is. We thank you for the assurances we have, and we, we pray that today you would just, just open our eyes and, and open our ears to hear what you have to say. I pray these would be your words, not mine. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, as we jump in today, uh-oh. Okay. Okay. I was worried that my slide background wouldn't show up at all. Um, you can kind of, it's the stars and stuff, but okay, we're there. So we're going to jump in today in Isaiah 7. Um, we're skipping 1 through 6, um, but I'm going to reference some things from it. But, but we're going to jump right in at Isaiah 7, which begins, um, In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah. Um, and we're going to pause there. Um, something that... Um, when I've read Isaiah in the past, I've always gotten really disoriented by all the names and all the different names for different places. So today I'm going to highlight in different colors the different places. So when we, we, when we look at Judah, the kingdom, we're going to talk about it in, in light blue. Ahaz was the king of Judah. He was the son of Jotham, who was the son of Uzziah. If you go to Isaiah 1, you actually see that Isaiah was a prophet during the time of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and one other king, Hezekiah, after him. And so we'll look at that in upcoming weeks. Um, but, but what we need to know about Judah, um, this is a geographical map made in PowerPoint, um, but Judah was on the south side of this PowerPoint slide. Um, Judah was a kingdom made up of two tribes of Israel. There is a point in the history of Israel where there is a united kingdom, first under Saul, the bad king, And then under David, the king after God's own heart, the best king in Israel's history. And then he has a son, Solomon. And Solomon is a super wise king, but apparently a very very bad father. Because when Solomon dies and passes off the kingdom to his son, in like the very first thing you see is that Solomon, the wisest man ever, sort of, um, his son, is, is unable to keep the kingdom from splitting. His very first action causes the kingdom of Judah and the kingdom of Samaria. We go from Israel, one kingdom, 12 tribes, to Judah, two tribes, Samaria, 10 tribes. And Solomon's son doesn't even get the 10 tribes, he gets the two. But why this is very important is because Judah is from the line, the kingdom, the kings of Judah are the kings from the line of David. And if we remember when David was king, God made him a promise. David says to God, I I want to build you a temple. And God says, you want to build me a house? I'm going to build you a house. And I'm going to establish your house for eternity. There will come one from your line after you die, who will be from your line, David, but also from mine. And it is on that promise that we see that goes back to what God said to a serpent concerning Eve, one from her line. Now it's more tightly put into one from David's line, but also we're promised one from God's line. And so the kingdom of Judah is where our hope lies when we come to Isaiah. And so we begin and we find out that this guy, Rezin, the king of Syria, and another king, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. So the people of Judah see that a kingdom is coming, 
to attack them. And, and, and Syria is a, is a kingdom north of Judah, and they are much bigger and scarier than Judah. And, and so the fact that Syria is coming up against them is a little concerning, but, but normally this would not be a problem, you see, because between them there's this other kingdom, Samaria, which is the other ten tribes of Israel, the, the kinsmen, uh, the Israelites all together, but, but they've split. And, and so Judah has always trusted Syria will never come for us because of Samaria. But there's a problem. Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, also came with Rezin, the king of Syria. Now, an important thing that gets so confusing in this is um, Samaria, Israel, Ephraim, all these places are the same place. Um, and it gets just super confusing. But essentially, when Judah became a separate kingdom, people referred to um, Samaria, the other kingdom, as Samaria, Israel, all these other places. It, it just came with all these names, and Isaiah is going to use a lot of them. It would be like if, if someone from outside the United States referred to, you the, referred to the United States. They might call it the United States. They might call it USA. They might talk about the policies coming from Washington. They might talk about America. Canadians call the United States America. I learned this recently. That's, I'm doing a doctorate in Canada, and I learned there, they always talk about, oh, the election down in America. And I'm like, well, you guys are part of America too. And they're like, we prefer to think of ourselves as above you. But um, I, I joke, they're too polite to say that. But the, the, the point is, is that um, there's all these different names, and we just need to be aware of that. So, so Syria and Samaria, both much bigger than Judah, have decided to team up. And so an, a distant foe is now being paired with an ally to come after Judah. And so Judah feels the fear. When the house of David was told Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. Now, there is a lot in this passage, the, the, in this verse. The first thing is when it says, when the house of David. Note, it does not say when Ahaz. It says when the house of David. Because as we read through Isaiah, one of the things we're going to see is that God is not as concerned with Ahaz as he is with the promise he made to David. And Ahaz sounds a lot better because Ahaz is a terrible king. If you read Kings or Chronicles, you come away with a guy who sacrificed one of his children and worshipped other gods. And we'll talk about that more in a minute, but let me tell you, when it says when the house of David, that's a flattering way to talk about a really bad king, or at least a positive way to consider him. In fact, when it says the heart of Ahaz, what's interesting is it doesn't really say the heart of Ahaz. Um, it's an it's a empty spot that you should really fill in with the house of David. But people don't do that because it gets confusing because people don't know how to... It's, it's like, how do you read that? But, but the point is, is that I, I think if you translate it well, you'd say when the house of David, the heart of the house of David... And what's being drawn attention to is, remember David, whenever there was a trial, what did David do? He turned to the Lord. He inquired of the Lord. He cried out to the Lord, except a few little times. But, but David handled things well. But now the house of David, the descendant of David, from which we're going to see one from the line of God and one from the line of David become the Messiah, that same David and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. And church, this trees metaphor here, trees shaking before the wind, it is an alien metaphor as far as I can tell in the Bible. Because do you know what the Bible talks about when the Bible talks about trees? In most places in the Bible, you want to be a tree. 
In, in Psalm 1, it says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the presence of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf never withers. In all that he does, he prospers. And then the wicked are described as chaff, like the, the, the not even like a, a, a living thing anymore, but chaff that the wind drives away. So the fact that the wind is driving at the trees here should pause us. Why on earth would that matter? Because trees are rooted. The wind does not matter to a tree. The only places I could find examples of trees shaking elsewhere in Scripture are when the, God speaks. But here, that is not what's happening. What, what I think is happening here takes us back to a promise in Isaiah 6. Um, in Isaiah 6, God, uh, Isaiah appears in the temple of the Lord and he realizes that he's before God and God is holy and he's not, but then he eats this thing. We don't have time to talk about it, but the long story short is, is God through an angel, they purify Isaiah, and then Isaiah hears God saying, who will deliver my message? And Isaiah says, I will. And God says, okay, just so you know, Isaiah, they will not respond. You're going to tell them they're not going to respond and at the end, the tree will be a stump. It'll be cut down. It'll be an exile. Judah is going to go into Babylonian exile. But the promise is that that stump will remain. And when you remember that and then jump back into Isaiah 2, it's actually two verses later and read that they're like trees that are shaking in the wind. I think, I think the imagery that the author is trying to draw our attention to is a tree that shakes in the wind and where that's a problem is a bad tree. But remember, the root is strong. And, and, and the shaking, the shaking. I have to talk about the shaking for a minute. It's trembling. They tremble. And, and in chapter 6, when Isaiah first sees the Lord in the temple, the first thing that happens is the foundations of the thresholds of the temple shake when God speaks. There is something that we should be afraid of and shake at and tremble before, and it is the voice of the Lord, not the armies of Syria and Ephraim. And so when we read this passage, we should read it thinking, how far the house of David has fallen. And so the Lord said to Isaiah, this is the first message you're going to go deliver to Ahaz. Go out to meet Ahaz, you and Shear Jeshub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. And say to him, be careful, be quiet, do not fear. Ahaz, do not fear and do not let your heart be faint. Because these two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Rezin in Syria and the son of Remaliah. He, it, they're, they're coming for you because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Remaliah, they've devised evil against you saying, let us go up against Judah and terrify it and let us conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Tabeel as king in the midst of it. So these two nations are conspiring together. And what are they saying? They're saying, you know what? We're going to go down and we're going to wipe out the king of Jerusalem and we're going to replace him with someone that'll do what we want. And, and here's how the Lord responds. Thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand, it shall not come to pass. What you are worried about, what you are trembling about, like a weak old tree, it's not going to happen. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin. And within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. What is predicted here is predicted in many of the prophets before Israel falls. What, what God is saying is Israel, Samaria, the, the northern kingdom of ten tribes is about to be wiped out. So what you fear, it's not going to come to pass. And the, the people you fear, they're not going to be around. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Remaliah. 
If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. As the passage, this first message to Ahaz comes to a close, God is saying, do not fear, have faith in me. Because these two nations that are threatening you, they're nothing. Do not fear, have faith in me. Now, I, I want to spend some time on, if you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Um, one of my favorite things about Hebrew is Hebrew really focuses on terseness, or like, like they say many things with few words. Um, and in this verse, in Hebrew, it's, it's actually three, three words in the top line, three words in the bottom line, and, and two of them on each are the same. The only difference is the first word. But um, what, what kind of happens, this is kind of a, a retranslation of it. Um, I, how I would translate it if I was being really blocky is I would say, if not faithful, surely not faithful. Kind of smoothing that out, if you are not firm in faith, surely you won't endure in faith. And on the surface, this seems, well, no duh, right? I mean, I, this, this is not earth shattering. But let me tell you, when, when God through Isaiah is talking to Ahaz, this isn't the beginning of Israel, or Judah, the kingdom of Judah, having problems with foreign powers. In fact, if you look at the history of the Israelites, over and over and over in history, Israel as a people group have come up against Pharaoh, Egypt. When, when the Israelites were enslaved, God, with the help of no one, defeated the entire army and saved his people. Then they go into the promised land, and over and over they're attacked by the, like all of these different tribes that come out, and all of these different nations, and all of these different things. And every single time when the people humble themselves and turn to God, what happens? God restores them. He saves them. He protects them. Ahaz should know this history, right? They probably taught it in, Israel, or in Judah, Judah-ish. Schools of Judah. I don't know how to say that. But uh, the, the point is, is, is God is saying, you, you know I can take care of this. You know I can take care of this. But, but to talk about this, I want to talk to you about faith. Because even though Ahaz knows what God has done in the past, his actions show a strong lack of faith. And I think that, that a very important thing in our conversation today is talking about what is faith. And, and I think a good definition of faith is to have a conversation about action rather than intellectual thought. Faith is not intellectual thought. Um, if you followed along with the Jake, uh, James reading from last week, um, I may call it Jacob on accident. If you didn't hear the sermon last week, there's a long thing. Listen to it on your own time. Um, but, but the point is, is in James, James talks about faith quite a bit. And at one point in James, he says, show me your faith apart from your works, and I, by my works, will show you my faith. If I have faith in something, it should change how I act. And some people rebel against this, like Martin Luther, and, and they, they read things like this and they say, no, 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 faith, you're not saved by your works. And, and the James, the author, he would say, no, you're not saved by your works. But if, if your works don't show that the faith is there, there's a problem. Now, other people go to, it's Hebrews 11, it says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old receive their commendation. And some people say, well, faith is believing something even if you can't see it. And the problem here is the word believe. Because the word believe in the Bible is an action. It's a verb. It's not an intellectual thought. It's you do something. If I believe this, it changes how I move and how I live, how I act. In fact, if you read further into Hebrews 11 and 12, the very next thing that happens is they talk about the actions of people like Abraham. 
where he did something in faith. And it doesn't talk about Abraham believed God really well in his thoughts. It talks about the actions that they took that evidenced their faith. So at the end of all this, what I'm putting forward is faith is action that is motivated by trusting something to be true. When, when you sat down in a chair today in here, I bet most of you did not do much work um, trying to figure out where the chair hold my weight. Maybe, maybe some of you did. I, I don't know. I don't think anyone was like pushing and saying, all right, this chair's clear. We have faith, right? Right? We have, that's, that's a little simple thing, but, but we have that same thing. When you're driving on the road, if you didn't have faith that other drivers weren't going to run into you all the time, you wouldn't drive on the road, right? I hope not. If you were thinking, you know, some people drive defensively, some people drive aggressively, thinking it's the best way to beat, you know, best offense or best defense is a good offense. I don't know. But the, the point is, is that actions show what we truly trust in. And in, in, in the story that we're reading today, what, what did Ahaz's action show? He shook like a tree in the wind. He didn't turn to God. He didn't cry out to God. He didn't do anything towards God. But I want to tell you something else because when we talk about this, I think there's, we, and we talked about this last week, but we think there's faith and then there's a lack of faith. But I want to tell you that in my mind, a lack of faith is an action motivated by something else being more true. And that might sound confusing and wonky, but let me explain it using a personal story. Um, for me, a, a, a struggle that I have a lot of times is I want to fix things. I want to problem solve things. I don't want to cry out to God. So when a challenge or a trial comes up, the first thing I do is I try and figure out how to fix it on my own. And then I call a mentor, and I call another mentor, and I process with 20 different people. And at some point in the process, someone might say, man, Matt, you should pray about it. And I'll be like, yeah, I should. And then I'll keep trying to solve it on my own until eventually I have not found a solution. And it is at that point that I will turn to God. And what does that show? My actions show that in that moment, my faith is not in God is the one in control here. I'm thinking, I, my faith is in, I think I'm in control of this. And it's only eventually after I'm humbled that I'm willing to go to God. My, my faith at the start of that story is in myself or in the things I can control, right? It, it's, not, it's not that I lack faith in God. It's that I have way more faith in myself at the beginning of that. And you could say, well, that's a lack of faith in God. Yes, we can nitpick this all day long. But the point is, is that when you lack faith in something, what you really have is more faith in something else. Ahaz in this story, when he's trembling, and when, note, he didn't call for Isaiah the prophet and say, hey, I need help. He didn't go to the temple. Isaiah came to him. Do you see? It's, he, he wasn't the one taking that first action. If you are not firm in faith, surely you won't endure in faith. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz through Isaiah, and he asked him, Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol, the, the deepest place, or as high as heaven. God says, Ahaz, you can ask anything you want of me, and I will do it to prove to you that you should put your faith in me, that you should be firm in your faith of me. And I want to tell you two things. I want to tell you first, if God ever offers this to you, the first thing you say is, God I would like unlimited signs, okay? Like, you get, oh, like the genie. No one's laughing here. I hope you're laughing at home. Um, I thought that was funny. Um, if God ever gives you the opportunity to get a whole bunch of signs, you it's just like if you get three wishes from a genie, you wish for infinite wishes, the genie says, I can't do that, then you wish that the genie wouldn't have rules about their wishes, and then you wish for infinite wishes, Right? 
Okay? No, okay. <laughs> Thank you for the pity laughs. But the, the point of this is, is God puts forward through Isaiah. He says, ask of me any sign. Ahaz could have asked for anything at this point. He could have said anything he wanted. God, let me live to be a million. Let me, let me live to see the Messiah. God, let me be the best king there ever was. I, I, he could have said any of that. No, of course, God knows he's not going to say that. But, but I want to tell you, um, we're about to talk about Jesus and the virgin birth. I never knew until today how funny the passage was leading up to it. Because here is how Ahaz responds. God says, ask of me any sign, you faithless, shaky tree, that only the stump and root should remain. Ahaz said, I will not ask. And I will not put the Lord to the test. Ahaz uses scripture towards God after basically not believing in God at all. It's crazy. I laugh when I read this and then I get really sad. But let me tell you, when when you read this, I will not put the Lord to the test, you might be thinking, well, Jesus said that at one point. That's kind of a good thing to say. The problem is, is that Jesus said it when tempted in the wilderness by Satan. And Satan tried to twist scripture to get Jesus to test God in a way that would have been sinful for Jesus to do. And so Jesus says to Satan, no, 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 you're going to misrepresent scripture? No, I'm going to use scripture properly. What Ahaz does here is like, it's like he attended church one time, and then when he was confronted by something, he said, well, I know, judge not lest ye be judged, so don't judge me. It's like he knew like one verse And he knew how to improperly apply it. And so he just threw it out there. It's so wrong. Because what God is saying here is, Ahaz, you already don't have faith. If there's anything I can do to give you faith, I will do it right now. And Ahaz responds with, no, 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 I won't put you to the test. You're already testing him by not having faith in him and by not calling out to him when these armies approach you. Hush, Ahaz. Isaiah responds, hear then, O house of David. And when it says, O house of David here, this is unusual language in the Old Testament. But when it says, O house of David here, what I believe Isaiah is trying to say is, if you were not a descendant of David, right now, right now, Syria and Samaria would just wipe this kingdom out. You're really going to respond? God is saying, ask of me anything and I will do it to prove to you who I am. And your response is, I'm good. What Ahaz is really saying is, I don't really want to be under your authority. I know about what's happened and passed in the history of our nation, and I, I'm pretty comfortable being afraid of these things because I'd rather fear them than fear you, God. And so he says, hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that, that you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. And it is here that we see the promise of the coming of Jesus. And how shall he come? He shall, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. Now, now we talk about the virgin birth a lot, um, but I don't think we often talk enough about the virgin conception. Because it's, it's not just born of a virgin. It's that for nine months, or nine months, we, we don't know, Jesus might have been a preemie, but he was perfect, so he would have been right at the nine-month mark. But the, the point is, is that we don't know exactly when he was conceived, but we know that nine months before he was conceived. And church, let me tell you, that thought to me is staggering. Because I remember when Lucy, when, when Lucy was in the womb and the first time we heard her kick and the, talking to her, the first human voices Lucy heard were me and Jess. And, and I think about the fact that, wow, 
Wow, Jesus would have gone through that same thing because when he became fully man, he subjected himself to, to living how a human lives. And yes, he did it without sin, but you, you think about the fact that the God of the universe and the, the Son who was there at creation, who knew exactly what would happen, humbled himself to the point that he was put in a womb and for nine months he was being knit together the same way any other human was. Wow. And he shall be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. But let me go back to the conception thing, because what I want to tell you is this year in August, Costco had Christmas trees. And I was ticked, because I was like, what on earth? In 2020, is this the year we're just going to take it? Let's just have a Christmas section all year round. And I was annoyed, but then I got to thinking, maybe the people at Costco, maybe the people at Costco are just so intent on celebrating the virgin conception. And they're like, we should have nine months of Christmas decorations for sale because that's, you know, and so parents of younger kids, I'm sorry in advance. I didn't think of that till just now. Um, I want to point out a few verses here. So when Jesus was in the womb, one thing we know is when Elizabeth, the, the mother of John the Baptist, heard the greeting of Mary, the mother of Jesus, the baby John the Baptist leapt in her womb and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit and she exclaimed with a loud cry, blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. If, if there is a reason uh, be, besides just, just having a high value of life to be pro-life, it's that the first person to declare the Messiah was a fetus. That is a very good reason. John the Baptist, through the Holy Spirit, recognized Jesus in the womb. And, and it staggers me to think that it wasn't just December 25th or whatever day it was. It wasn't really December 25th, or it could have been. We don't know. But the, the point is, when Jesus was born, that moment, that amazing moment was not the beginning of God in the flesh, the incarnation. It started nine months earlier. And that should stagger us. And it should cause us to just praise God. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He will be called God with us. Now that name, you may note, doesn't show up very often in the New Testament. But at the beginning of Matthew, we see, and you shall call him Emmanuel. And what, what are the last words of the Great Commission? All, it starts off, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me by Jesus talking. Therefore, go, make disciples, baptize them, teach them all that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always to the end of days. Emmanuel, the final lines of Matthew. It goes on, he shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. Now, um, I mentioned I have not studied the book of Isaiah in depth before this week, um, and I want to tell you, um, even I talked to Tim for like two minutes this morning, and he said one thing, and I went, uh-oh. Um, but, but I want to tell you what I think to the best of my ability. There are a whole lot of different arguments on this curds and honey. Some people think it's like a special diet. Some people think it's these other things. Um, the thing I found most compelling in my study, um, and Tim, correct me next week if I'm wrong, um, just right from the stage, I will appreciate it because I'm excited to hear you and Rich preach. But the, the point is, is um, what was Israel? It was the land of milk and honey. And, and I think what's happening here is even though these nations are being threatened over and over and over, there's a promise here that when the Messiah is born, the Emmanuel, God with us, it's going to be in the land of Israel or the land of Judah, which somehow, and, and, and I, that's how I interpret this. Other people interpret it differently. Um, that's my best guess. 
Um, and the idea of he, when he knows how to refuse evil and choose good, there's different translation arguments here. Um, the idea might be that he, he will know from an early age how to refuse evil and choose good because he's sinless, right? And, and, and that's where I go with this. And when I read this, one of the first things I think is we are talking about King Ahaz from the line of David, and now we're talking about a king from the line of David in the future. And when we talk about this king, part of what we are talking about, first off, this king won't, like he'll be from the line of David, but also um, he's going to be born of a virgin, which means Ahaz will have nothing to do with it. But, but also on top of that, um, at, at, as, as we read through this, the, the thing that stands out to me is Ahaz, as an adult, God offers him any sign, and instead he misquotes scripture. And then you look at Jesus, who never sins. And you see this contrast from, from, from birth. This, this child would never sin, and, and that is amazing. Because one of the things we know, if we read through Luke, is we know that when Jesus was young, Mary, his mother, treasured up all these things, watching Jesus grow. Um, and Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. If we take the book of Luke to be true, which we should because it's in the Bible, but if we take it to be true, I think one of the things we see in it is evidence that Jesus would have grown. And, and from birth, he wasn't born in like, like perfect God awareness because he became fully man and submitted himself to that. That doesn't mean he became less God, but it means he submitted himself to, to development. <sighs> Lucy is growing molars. And it is terrible. It is so sad. She is the happiest little baby and the last few days have been miserable. And she is sad. I had another picture of her where you can see her tears. But, um, oh, it's just so bad. But this is sad Lucy. This is what she was like all yesterday. Just, oh, it hurts. And she doesn't really get a choice. But can you imagine the creator God and Jesus being, who was there at creation, the word that became flesh and dwelt among us, had to grow molars? And, and the thing that I love the most about having a little toddler now um, is, is the triumph of the moments where she figures something out. She just figured out how to say the word blue. I don't know that she knows the color blue. When we show her things that are blue, blue. When we show her things that aren't blue, blue. But the point is that she's learning words, and it's not sinful to get the wrong color, right? And, but, but thinking about the idea that Jesus would have developed in that way, while being fully sinless, and as he grew, he would have grown more and more into understanding who he was as fully God and fully man. It blows me away. And, and the promise in this passage is that the one who is coming will do that. There is a king. Ahaz is a terrible king. Ahaz sacrifices one of his children. Ahaz, what, what's about to happen is Ahaz at one point, because he's so worried about Syria, even though God says don't worry about Syria, is he starts worshiping the gods of Syria, hoping that because he does that, Syria will give Judah a pass. But, but the promise is that those two kings you dread are going to be defeated, but he shall eat curds and honey. The land of Israel and Judah will, will remain, even though it's going to go into exile, they'll be back. There's a promise here. The Lord ends, Isaiah ends through the Lord, the, the Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. And, and I think there should be like a dun, dun, dun right there um, because they're worried about Ephraim and they're worried about Syria. They're worried about these two larger nations. And then there's this. 
And God says, you're not going to have to worry about Syria and Samaria much longer because they're going to be wiped out. But here's what happens. Eventually, this is the picture. This is the map. Assyria surrounds them on all sides. It is not Assyria that eventually defeats Judah. It's, it's actually Babylon that takes over for Assyria. But the, the point of this is that what Ahaz fears now, God is saying, you, you fear these two nations. There's a bigger nation coming. And, and God's promise to Ahaz, or God's comment to Ahaz is not, here's the judgment. God says, I have faith now. Remember, if you are not firm in faith, surely you won't endure in faith. God is saying, please, please, Ahaz, just put your faith in me. But God's not going to make him do that. God's going to give him choices. And let me tell you, Judah, under Ahaz, he sacrifices one of his sons, someone from the line of David, gross. He, he also starts worshiping the Syrian gods. He also starts worshiping the Assyrian gods. He actually visits Assyria, figures out what their altar looks like, and builds one of their altars and puts it in their temple and moves one of the altars for the God of the Bible because he wants the Assyrians to, to like him. God said, I will protect you from all of these places. And what does he do? What do his actions show? His actions show that his faith is in the things of this world. He, at the end of the story, at the end of Ahaz's life, he is more worried about the armies of the world than about serving God. At no point does he repent. He is a terrible king. The king after him, Hezekiah, is much better. But unfortunately, the best king in the Old Testament in Israel, David, and the followers after David and his line, none of them are qualified to be the king that can reign forever, the Messiah, the one who can defeat death, the one who, who has power to, to reign for eternity. None of them. And, and the call to, if you are not firm in faith, surely you won't endure in faith, to Ahaz is the same essential call that God had to each of the kings of the Old Testament that they failed in. Some spectacularly, and others far more spectacularly. None of them really lived up to this until Jesus. And remember when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, he responded with scripture. He responded with, I will not test the Lord God. And and when he went before the cross, we know when he was in the garden, he prayed if there's any other way, but he lived in obedience. Whereas we see this King Ahaz who did the opposite. As we come to the end, I, what I want to tell you today is I don't think God is going to appear to you through a prophet and say, hey, let me know what sign will get you to have faith in me. Because the Bible is full of fulfilled promises and some promises that will yet be fulfilled. But, but in Isaiah 7, there are, set, there are a bunch of promises that are fulfilled. We know that Jesus was born of a virgin, Mary. We, we know that Jesus was from the house of David. We know that Joseph, his father, was from the line of David. We also know Mary was from the line of David. Syria and Samaria were destroyed. They, uh, they were destroyed during the time of Ahaz and the later kings uh, in, in that time. And you can say, well, there's Samaritans still. There are Samaritans still, but there's no longer a kingdom of Samaria. They no longer are a threat to the Israelites in the same way. Assyria loomed over Judah. That became a major narrative that kept going under the next kings of Judah up until Babylon took over. Jesus did eat curds and honey, if we take that interpretation to mean he was born in Israel, he was born in Bethlehem, and he would have grown up there for the most part, minus the time he spent in Egypt. Um, Jesus was the literal God with us. He was fully God and fully man. He was God with us. Remember, he is the place where heaven and earth meet that we talked about earlier this year. And finally, 
I, I think the underlying promise of this passage and the bigger idea of Isaiah about a Messiah who is worthy to follow, there is a king fit to rule for eternity. It's ongoing. It's a promise that Jesus fulfilled while he was on this earth and he continues to fulfill because he has not failed and will never fail. And so we can take that promise to heart. So at the end of today, I, again, I don't think God is going to appear to you and just say, what sign do you need? I'll give you whatever you want. If he does, remember, infinite signs. Okay? Remember that. But, but what I want to tell you is that, that the Old Testament is full of all of these prophecies, that, that there were short-term things, there were some of the things he said to Ahaz that would have been fulfilled in the time of Ahaz and right after, but then in Jesus we see a full fulfillment of these things. And, and for us today, what we need to take from this is, is Ahaz would have known, Ahaz in his time would have known that if you turn to God, if you cry out to God, if you humble yourself before God, he will respond to you. But Ahaz was unwilling to take that action because he chose to live for himself. And for us today, what I want to tell you is at, at the start, if you're out there and you're thinking, I, I don't know if I have the faith in God. I don't know if my faith is in God. I want to tell you the starting point of that is faith is action that is motivated by trusting something to be true. The, the point of the Bible is God has revealed to us through this special revelation, his word, he has revealed to us that he is true. He has revealed to us that, that he is consistent. He has revealed to us that he is unchanging. And if, if we trust in that, if you are out there today and you're like, I, I've never trusted in this before, what, what I want to encourage you to do is, is to spend time thinking, do I really believe that Jesus died and rose again? Do I believe that the Old Testament predicted him, that he fulfilled those Old Testament prophecies, and that, that he is a king who invites me to be a part of his kingdom? And if you are a part of his kingdom, it can't just be, well, I know Jesus is God, I know Jesus is Savior, and so I believe those things. It's got to be informed by your actions. Your actions do not save you. But if your actions do not prove your faith, What are actions you can do? This is my closing thought. What are actions you can take in the next 27 days? We've got 27 days till Christmas to show that your faith is the, in the one who was born of a virgin, lived, died, rose again, and reigns for eternity. For some of you, that might be crossing the line of faith to say, I want Jesus to be king of my life. For others, if I can tell you all one thing, it's that every year around Christmas, it is one of the spiritually worst times of the year for me. Because routine changes. And whenever my routine changes, somehow in the day, I, I don't wake up and spend time in the Word. I don't do my regular patterns. I, I wind up like, I, I just, man, there's, the NBA is starting up soon. I love basketball, and I'm, I've got all these things. And so all of a sudden, I'll be like, I need to go to bed at a certain time and get up at a certain I have a routine, and it's like, well, basketball started, so I'm going to let that go for a month. And, and the, the point of all of this is I, I struggle with that, and so one of the things that Jess and I are talking about is for the next 27 days, there's a specific book that we are going, to, going through together as a couple. And that is an action we are taking. It's a, it's a book where we can focus on the names of God, and we are so excited for that. Because we are going to intentionally take actions that, that, put us, uh, that show that our faith is in the Lord. Now, for some of you, when you read this, you might be like, okay, so I already do a devotion. I'm in a small group. I do this, I do this, I do this. I don't have any room to add. Well, what I will tell you is don't subtract things that you shouldn't subtract. Spend your time, like, if your actions are already showing faith, that doesn't mean you need to just keep adding on. It means you need to live in those actions well. You, you, I, I'm not necessarily saying today you need to do 400 more things. What I'm saying is, do your actions show in this season 
that you have faith in the one that was born of a virgin, that, that rose, or that died, that rose again, and that reigns in heaven to this day and will reign for all eternity, the one who is coming again. That's, that's the challenge for today, and I would encourage you to take that to heart. I'd encourage you to, to live that out with others. I, I, I would encourage you to not sit idly by this season, but I would encourage you to take actions that show the faith you have in God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you for how good you are. We thank you for how wonderful you are. We thank you for just the amazing promises that you have fulfilled through, through your son's birth, born of a virgin, through his life, where he healed, where he, he cast out demons, where, where he preached, where he went to those in need, those who were marginalized, and he invited each and every person to be a part of your kingdom. And we thank you that when he died, he died so that we could be a part of that kingdom. And we thank you that he rose again, proving that everything he said was true. We thank you that, that after he rose again, he ascended into heaven and you left us, or, and when he left, he left us with the Spirit. And we thank you that because of that, we can have faith and we can have actions that glorify you. And we pray, Lord, that this season, as we reflect on your son, as we anticipate celebrating his coming, on December 25th, that we would take actions that show our faith in you. We pray that, that you would be near to us, and re really we pray that we would be near to you because you are near to us. I pray for anyone who does not know your son as king, that today they would be challenged to, to reach out online or, or if they're here in person to talk to me or one of the other pastors after, that, that they would not, that they would not um, wait, but instead they would take that action of learning more about what it means to follow after you. We thank you that we can put our faith in you. We thank you that we can put our trust in you. Um, and we, we thank you that through your spirit we can live for you. We pray we would go and do this. And we thank you for what your son has already done. It's in your name we pray. Amen. I want to invite all of you as you leave um, to just spend time reflecting on just how amazing. I, I, don't, I don't know what else to say today besides I, the thing that all week has just been on my heart is Jesus in a womb. I, if, if December 25th is the birthday, then right now Mary's eight months pregnant. She's probably got swollen ankles. She's, you know, she's, she's dealing with all the joys of pregnancy, but, but praise the Lord that Jesus willingly endured that. And so I invite you to go in peace thinking of our Savior conceived and a virgin born of a virgin who lived, who died, who rose again, and who reigns forever. Go in peace.